Brethren and sistren, what's cracking? This is Graham. Damn it! Whatever. We're rolling with it. I'm not. I'm not editing over that. Ah, uh, my brain is shot. Um, I was gonna record on Wednesday night, but I would have ended up cussing more, like like bad cussing, like PG-13 cussing, on the podcast. And I didn't want to do that to you guys. I feel like I've I, doing that in back-to-back episodes was bad. But I had a bad day, and I called my boss and gave him an earful, and basically a mistake had happened, and I'd gotten stuck with way too bad of a route that was not supposed to be on me, and instead of having like an 800 case day, I had like an 1100 case day, and I'm like, yeah, uh, not not gonna work. So I didn't get home until like eight o'clock that night. Should not happen, especially on a day where it's not even snowing. Today it snowed, I had to put chains on and everything. I was naive enough to think that that part of the year was behind me. But blah, I've just had a long week. My brain is fried. I finished two books. I've listened to a bunch of podcasts, and I've just worked, 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 worked. I've eaten almost nothing but crap today. And it's amazing what that can do to kind of destroy you. But I have the mobile command center back. Got it back from the mechanic. He... uh, I gave him a long list of things to check out that were wrong with it, and he came back, he's like, all right, if I fix everything, it's going to be four grand. I'm like, dog, I spent five grand on the whole car. Like, geez, man. So we went through and, like, prioritized stuff. I'm like, all right, I'm going to fix this and this right now, and I'll I'll spread the rest out over a couple of months. Jeez. Because it's not all mission critical, so... I am back, and it feels good. It feels good to have my own car back. I, I really missed having it for the last week. All right, so the first book. Uh, I finished listening to Titan by Rob Cruzy. Told you about that one. It's the first in the Mammon series, and that's the one where I will be in the anthology that I believe takes place between books two and three. Uh, it was really cool to kind of go through. Jeez, I wrote my short story in this world before having read any of the books but that was because Rob gave the collaborators like a, a look at the outline in detail for the whole trilogy uh, because it spans like decades and so you can figure out like okay if I'm gonna write my own little story how does it tie into the events of the main trilogy and so what year does it need to be in and what's going on with the economy and like you got to know that stuff to make it all sync up and then he's gonna have to go and read like a dozen of these stories be like, ah, okay, the, this can work, this has got to change. Like, he, he's got a lot on his plate right now. But, man, I really envy him. He's one of the more uh, successful indie authors out there. Like, this is his day job. This is his source of income is him selling indie books. And if you go and look at his Amazon listing, like, he's got a bunch of series that have, you know, many such multiple books in them. Like, the, the Iron Dragon series, I read that trilogy um, I'm going to do a review of that on Upstream in the coming weeks. Man, I'm really behind on writing reviews for them. I'm kind of behind on everything. But that's just because work eats up so much of my time. I, remember how I did 70 hours last week? Jeez, I, I at least cracked 60 this week. But anyway, I finished listening to Titan. I, I did the audiobook, and uh, it was it was excellent. It was all of the things that I enjoy about a cruisy novel where you know he gives us a big ensemble cast of characters just enough about them all so that they are um, you know distinct and recognizable and then you know they've got uh, 
their own little bits of development, their own roles to play in the story, and like even with you know twenty something characters to keep track of, it's all very cohesive and coherent. And the the narrator, I bless him, I forgot his name, uh, did a really great job. And uh, it's not just some slapdash thing recorded in a car <coughs> like mine. <coughs> no, like it was it was either Blackstone or Tantor or something like. It's a big company that does his stuff for audio so that's really cool so I, I finished listening to, to Titan it ends not really on a cliffhanger but more on like a hinge in the story it's like okay something big and catastrophic just happened but you don't you don't end on that note you end like five minutes later in, in a sense you get an, an idea of what they've got to do next so the story for the first book is complete but there are still very high stakes there are still you know, some questions to be answered. You just you just know that they're they've got to take it to the the next level in book two. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. The other one that I finished today was Baron and Luthien by Tolkien. And one thing that was cool about that, you know, obviously it was J.R.R. who did all of the writing, but then it was Christopher who did all of the editing. And it's kind of I mean based on this this one volume you know, I, I don't know what else he's written in other volumes and stuff. Like, from what I understand, like, all of the uh, histories of Middle-earth and the various other things that J.R.R. wrote have been kind of simultaneously published in different collections and stuff that Christopher curated over the course of his life. But I think everything that he wrote that has anything to do with Baron and Luthien is in this book, Baron and Luthien. The thing is... Tolkien was kind of writing all of this stuff for himself and this is this is all in the long catalog of Middle Earth chronicles that uh, were published posthumously and so while there is kind of like a main through line for the story there are a couple of different versions of it where he changed key elements as he was you know writing and rewriting versions of the story over the years like Christopher even says in one part of the of the book like here I found an entire manuscript where like pages and pages of it had been written and erased in pencil and then he rewrote them I'm like holy crap like man no wonder he wrote the way that he did is because just because <laughs> there was no like backspace delete cut out this paragraph whatever like if you wrote it down it's like it's a lot of work to change this so you've got to be <laughs> committed to what you're putting on that paper but anyway, the, the short version of it is that uh, Baron and Luthien are two, depending on the version of the story, elves. Um, and uh, I think there's like a difference in standing based on the version. And there's another version where Baron's a man and Luthien is an elf, but she goes by a different name. But the, the kind of overall bullet point version is that he's mortal, she's not. He falls in love with her, she falls in love with him. Her father is like, yeah, not only no, but hell no. Like, you know, if, if she falls in love with you and stays with you, she becomes mortal and my daughter will die. And this became kind of like a, a, a precursor to what would later happen with Aragorn and Arwen in Lord of the Rings. And Arwen was a descendant of Luthien um, because Elrond was a descendant of Luthien. I think she was his great grandmother or something. Um, very cool story you know it's it's tolkien writing a, a love story i'm hesitant to call it a romance because i think that gives it kind of a different connotation but it's 
it almost kind of harkens back to it. Maybe I'm saying this right now just because we're reading the Old Testament. Uh, it almost kind of harkens back to um, Isaac and uh, Rebecca in the Old Testament. Like he's he's got to do this seven year labor for a woman to prove that he loves her, and then the dad pulls a switcheroo on him, and he's got to pull like another seven years of labor. There isn't the switcheroo element of it, but it's it's you know this man has to do an incredible labor to earn the approval of a disapproving father. Um, the Silmarils are involved. They are, you know, three gems that are beyond value to the elves. Um, they're created from the light of two different trees that if I were to explain that, I'd have to go way back into uh, all of the Middle-earth lore to make it all make sense. But uh, basically, they can only be handled by you know, people with pure souls. It's one of those kinds of artifacts. And, um, you know, Baron is one such man. If anything that is created of evil touches it, it, it burns it up. And, uh, you know, that includes creatures like spiders or, you know, basically anything that Morgoth created. Morgoth is kind of the, the fallen angel, the Lucifer of Middle-earth, of, of the whole lore. Sorry there, I had to just flip a Yui if you heard a whole bunch of stuff rolling around in my car. And uh, Baron ends up losing a hand. Um, he goes to retrieve the Silmaril from some place, and these evil guys are tracking him down. And there's a monster that, you know, as soon as as Baron grabs the Silmaril, the monster bites his hand and bites his hand off. But the Silmaril was in his hand, and therefore the monster was holding it, and it ends up burning him up and killing him. Luthien comes to his rescue. She patches up his stump arm. She takes him back to her father, and and. Uh, He's like, you know, what do you, what makes you think that you're worthy of my daughter? And he's like, um, in my hand at this moment, right at this very moment, I am holding a Silmaril. He's like, show me. He's like, I can't. My hand is in the gullet of a monster. <laughs> like just, just a flex, you know, like it, it makes for a, a very great tale. Um, and Tolkien kind of changed the details, modified it a little bit. And the various versions of that whole story were in the audiobook that I listened to. And so you've got this story that was written by J.R.R., edited by Christopher, and um, on the audiobook, it was it was tackled by uh, Timothy and Samuel West. And so the parts that were written by J.R.R. were narrated by the the father of the West duo, and the parts that were like interluded with by Christopher saying, "Okay, Dad wrote this, and it changed this, and whatever." Like the son narrated that, so you really get this kind of sense that here's. Here's J.R.R. reading you the story, and here's Christopher explaining, you know, what this interlude is that that offers up a, an alternate ending. Um, there are like three or four such versions in the audiobook that I grabbed that I'm sure they'd correspond to whatever print edition the, they're collected in. Um, I'd say the latter, probably two-thirds of the book, really just consist of poetry. Um, kind of the same story told in an epic poem format that for the most part rhymes and, and works in verse. Um, you know, it was, it was very calming to listen to it today on, on what would have otherwise been a very bad day at work. Uh, I'm glad that I'm getting into Tolkien's deeper and more nuanced and more substantive works um, you know, 20 years after I started reading his books for the first time. Because, you know, back then I didn't really appreciate him. I was more used to reading kind of like the thriller-paced fiction, and I was like, man, this stuff is kind of boring and long and drags on and takes forever. And 
back then I didn't have an appreciation for what he was writing or why. And, you know, now with an additional 20 years of life under my belt, I kind of understand the value of it. And I've got something additional to say on that note, but give me a moment to run into Papa Murphy's to order some pizza for my family. And I'm going to follow this up with uh, an additional bit of two cents that's, that's related to that issue. Be right back. This podcast does not have a sponsor, but if it did, I would probably just start pimping my brother's website. Check out www.wallquotes.com. They do vinyl lettering, like all the signs and stuff that you see inside people's house. The live, laugh, love, and in this home, like they've got a bunch of those stock quotes. They also do custom stuff, but he's diversified his operation over the years to include other things like a laser cutter that will cut things out of wood and metal. He's also got VeloSite, a website that's dedicated to reflective decals for bicycles. He's big into cycling, kind of our whole family is. He decked out my bike with a whole bunch that match the, the black paint job on the frame, but if you're driving around at night and headlights hit it, the decals light up. He put some logos on there. He, he's got some uh, icons that look like bike chains. He's got right along the frame, it says up, up and away. It's cool. And since they're a small business, they've been kicked in the huevos by not necessarily the pandemic so much as all the stupid, ridiculous policies enacted by the governments of our great fine nation in response to said pandemic. So if you're looking for lettering, signage, whatever, go check out wallquotes.com. And now on to the episode. Okay, earlier this week I was listening to Michael Rosenbaum's podcast, uh, Inside of You, where he interviews different, mostly actors. In fact, come to think of it, I'm pretty sure everybody he's ever interviewed on that show is an actor. Uh, in this one, the guest was uh, Alan Richson. This was filmed a couple of months ago. I think it came out right before uh, the Jack Reacher show that just landed on... Amazon. Um, I'm not going to watch the show. I just I I tried reading the first book and the the content was a little bit beyond what I enjoy reading. And um, you know I've been told that the show is like well they they they're basically accurate to the book as far as content goes. I'm like oh, that's too bad. But I've enjoyed Alan Richson and the few things where I've seen him. He was the uh, the Aquaman on Smallville. Uh, he was the actor playing that one at, at the time. And then he was also Gloss in Hunger Games Catching Fire in the movie there. So, uh, you know, basically anytime you need a gigantic beef tank who's good at delivering cheesy one-liners, you go and you hire Alan Richson. And, and that's fine. I, I enjoyed everything that I've seen him in. You know, he, I, th I think he's good at what he does. But what I enjoy about these Rosenbaum interviews is that you know, he, he gets real with these people and they shared, you know, the kind of the hard things that have happened to them and that they've gone through. And uh, I think it's important to just kind of, you know, see people as people, you know, understand that, you know, just because somebody is successful doesn't mean that they are innately better than you or have an easier life than you. Um, Richson opened up about that and he got me thinking, you know, as he shared his own experiences, he got me thinking about my creative career, my writing career, and uh, 
he, he made me glad that I have failed in the ways that I have over the years. Um, I didn't know this about him. Actually, I knew very little about him at all beyond the fact that you know, he's the beef tank. Uh, he's about two years older than me. Uh, he's married. He's got three little boys. Uh, he's bipolar. And he just thought that he dealt with depression from time to time. And, you know, when he finally got diagnosed and then got on the meds and saw what a difference it made, he's like, oh, crap, I really am bipolar. Um, But he spent all of his time for a long time in Hollywood chasing success. And he said, you know, the, the disappointing thing is getting to the top and finding out that there's nothing there and thinking that, you know, my happiness or my sense of self worth is going to be tied to, you know, achieving a-lister accomplishments in my craft and he goes I, I kind of learned the hard way because he'd had a really good year where you know he had book deals and production deals and script deals and stuff and um, everything went through but he was just busy he was destroying himself and none of it really meant anything and he had to kind of recenter himself and and figure out what was really important to him and like for me <sighs> It's, it's difficult to relate to people like him in a sense, only because like my faith has always been a huge part of my life. You know, that's where I found my purpose, my understanding of why I'm alive and why I set out to do the things that I do. But for people who generally aren't religious, you know, they have to find that purpose in another way. And a lot of times with creatives, they've got to go through a try-fail cycle and hit that fail button a whole bunch of times. And, uh, you know, the ones that are successful are the ones that figure out what their purpose is. And, um, yeah, there was a time when I was in my 20s, which was right around the age he was when he played Aquaman. Um, you know, he almost, like got his own pilot in his own show based off of that one guest appearance in like the fifth season of Smallville. (laughs) He's like, yeah, it was, it was kind of weird to go from being like a model and a nobody to, oh wow, three weeks in Hollywood and they want to give you a primetime show. It ended up not working out that way. But, um, when I was his age, like all I wanted was a literary agent and a publishing contract and, you know, to be like these authors that I read all the time. You know, especially because this was the age of the Wunderkind. You had Veronica Roth and her Divergent book and Christopher Paolini and his Aragon book. And it just seemed like there were all these, you know, early bloomers that were succeeding where I wasn't. And, you know, of course, in my humble way, I thought that I was better at writing than they were. Narrator, he was not. And, you know, I think that failure was good for me. More to the point, I think that success would have been very bad for me because if I'd had that success at an early age, I would have just expected to keep having it. And seeing what's going on in the publishing industry now, and especially the uh, pop culture peer pressure movements with, you know, oh, you need to have this quota, and oh, if you're going to write for a big publisher, you got to write about this subject, and you got to do this, and you got to do that, and you got to say your pronouns, and you got to do all it. It's weaponized and politicized in a way that independent creation is not. Now, I've got, you know, on average, a dozen listeners to this podcast, you know, and the Dread Pennings Adventure Hour. And I've, I can probably count on just two hands the uh, amount of loyal readers that I would say I have for my books. 
And, you know, I make 100% of my living off of my trucking, basically. And if I'd told myself that 15 years ago, you know, 22-year-old Graham would have been pretty disappointed in that. But he wouldn't have understood why 37-year-old Graham is actually very content with that and very proud of that. And it's because of all of the failures that I've had along the way as far as my creative career goes. You know, I, I like where I am. Would I like to be selling more and selling regularly? Absolutely. But there is nobody telling me what to do. There is nobody dragging me along to their project and saying, this is what you have to do, this is what you have to say, and you have to do it our way. And if I spend the next 50 years of my life writing stuff for me and the dozen people who actually enjoy what I do, I'm fine with that. Because at the end of my life, I will, put, I will have put together a corpus of work that I am proud of, and I will look back at it and say, I did everything that I wanted to do, and I did it for the reasons that I wanted to do it. And nobody made me say anything that I don't want to defend. You know, nobody made me part of a pop culture machine where I get to parrot what they tell me to, and I get to have the exact opinions that I am allowed to. And that is what you sell your soul to when you sell it to these big, quote-unquote, creative all caps, corporations that own and steer our pop culture. If you've got any other questions about what I'm talking about, go check out my recent video um, about the Song of Albion trilogy on YouTube. The importance of the bard. Because I intend to add my voice to the cacophony of dissent that you hear with uh, independent creators. I think that's all I'm going to say on the subject for now. Uh, I just got home. I'm going to throw these pizzas in the oven. I appreciate you guys who listen every time I post something new. Uh, big shout out to Ben, who always weighs in whenever I uh, throw something out there. He probably messages me the most. And, uh, you know, I, I appreciate the neat things you send along. Uh, you as well, Philip Michael. He sent me this really cool uh, rundown of, I guess, somebody made real-life Mandalorian armor. And, you know, not just like, oh, we could make it and wear it in real life, but like we could actually use this in combat real life. Pretty cool stuff. I'm always up for seeing something cool that somebody else is doing. So keep at it. If you guys want to email me, dreadpennies at gmail.com. I think I put that in the outro. So whatever. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you all. Talk to you soon. The Radcracker podcast is produced by Graham Bradley. If you want to send me something for the mailbag, my email address is dreadpennies at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Minds or Instagram at dreadpennies. Be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash Graham Bradley. And check out dreadpennies.com for updates on everything else that I'm working on. Till next time, stay rad, drive safe, see you out there.